Alright, hello there everyone. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey and I'm your host as usual. Uh, hopefully we have a shorter show tonight. I say hopefully because it's, we got stuff to talk about. I don't mean that we don't, but it's been a pretty quiet week, all things considered. Uh... Especially on the news front, you know, we've we got the pay-per-view UFC 292 to review, and we got a preview of the Singapore card. Oh, that's gonna suck. Not the card itself. I'll talk about the card, I promise. But they're prime time in Singapore for that one, and the prelims start at 3 a.m. my time. And because I'm me, I'm not gonna wake up early. I'm just gonna stay up. So I'll just be up Friday. I'll probably be up for about 24 hours. Uh, depending on when I get up Friday. And then I'll just stay up until the UFC event's done. So, yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. But we're going to preview that. Uh, but man, not a whole lot of news uh, this last week. It's been relatively quiet. But we will talk about what there is to talk about. And you know the runtime. I'm doing this live. or recording live. You know the runtime, I don't, so hopefully it's a little bit shorter. But if I'm lying, and if you're looking at a longer runtime and laughing at me, fair play to you. Uh, if you could please interact with the product a little bit, that's always helpful. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever's applicable to your podcast platform of choice. Uh, share, if you've done any and all of that. Whatever your social media platforms happen to be, uh, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them popping up. So whatever you happen to use that for that, tell people about the show if you think they'd be interested. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's it for the preamble. So let's get to uh, the, the fight, shall we? So UFC 292. So main event. You know, I did not, for the record, did not have the best night of picks for this one. I haven't been, like, spreadsheeting my picks or anything, but I probably... Maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll start doing that. If you guys... Would you guys even care? I'm just... As a thought experiment, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't... I do it because I find it fun. And because I... It's a way to fill airtime. But I don't actually know my record. Like, I don't know my accuracy as a general rule, so... Maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll start doing that. Um, anyway, main event, Sean O'Malley, TKO's Aljamain Sterling, 51 seconds into the second round. <sighs> I I was fairly confident picking Sterling. Clearly, I was wrong. Um, I didn't, uh, I'd have to double check exactly what I said. I think I would have been, if I completely dismissed O'Malley, I would have, that would have been a mistake. Um, not just in hindsight, but even, like, at the time. Dismissing him, you might not have thought, liked his chances, and I didn't. But there's a couple of things that have started really working for him that need to be acknowledged. Um, some of this stuff has been there for a while, and it's only kind of coming into its relief now. Some of it's been, some of it's a bit more recent, but a couple of things. Um, one, his his cage craft, his ring work. He's 
actually over the last this fight in particular he was very good about keeping away from the fence that would have been a problem for him if sterling could have gotten him there consistently a little bit of that is sterling's less than stellar footwork as well i like again cage position you can argue i'm a there's a very legitimate point of distinction between footwork and again ring craft or cage craft right um, so I, I try not to use them interchangeably because some people do, and it's understandable why, but it's not, it's a little bit misleading. So not the same thing, but I'm talking Ringcraft at the moment. Sterling's Ringcraft is a little bit odd, and he was not able to kind of corral O'Malley in any kind of consistent way. Another thing about uh, Sterling that... This had struck me the first time I saw these two face off after Sterling beat Cejudo. I didn't think it would play as big a role as it did, but um, O'Malley is a... He's taller than Sterling, and I think he had a longer reach. Sterling doesn't usually have to fight guys who have those dimensions over him. He's usually the larger man at bantamweight. And watching this, I he said after the fact that he got, you know, he did have longer fighters to spar with and try to replicate some of that, but I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying he looked uncomfortable with that reality. So I don't know exactly what contributed to that. There's a lot of things that could have gone into that, but... He's very clearly, he was very clearly not at his most comfortable against a guy who has a longer reach than him. It kind of threw him off. To go with that, um, I don't know if he's, the first round of this fight was a lot of nothing. Well, that's not fair. I'll correct myself. There was not a lot of, um, offense and there was not a lot of impact that doesn't mean there was nothing because i've seen fights where there was nothing that first round here was not nothing it was just what you got out of it was a lot more um i won't say this you got a tone out of this so you got reads and reactions that didn't merit that didn't lead to a lot of offense in that round but it did a lot of groundwork for what was going to happen. So the ah man, how do I... Sterling usually gets people biting on his feints. He shows people a lot of stuff. Both guys did a lot of switching. Um, O'Malley's switching is interesting because you can catch him while he's doing it. If you look at how he does it. It's usually very obvious, and he's at distance when he does it. Now, if he's far enough out, it doesn't matter. If you can trick the distance a little bit, when he switches, you can counter him. And uh, actually, Piotr Jan caught him a few times uh, mid-switch. But Sterling was just kind of content to switch with him. And a lot of his longer-range weapons that try to disrupt his opponent, make them uncomfortable, weren't working. His fakes and feints didn't draw um, major reactions out of Sterling 
the reactions that he did get were movement-based, not not blocking, right? Not looking to counter necessarily right away. They were very, you're showing me this, I'm going to slip to this side. Showing me this, I'm going to move the other direction. Or, on a couple of occasions, it was just, you're too far away to land that, so I don't care if you fake it or if you actually throw it, I'm not giving you anything. There's a really, really uh, solid read on distancing that has to happen when, uh, for those to be effective reads. By the same token, Sterling... I'm not trying to bury the guy. There's a lot of people who've been very dismissive of Sterling, and it's it's very unfair to him. I mean, this, the crowd last night that were in Boston gave a big F.U. Aljo chant for no discernible reason other than it's Boston. And, you know, they're kind of like that. Okay, for the record, I'm not accusing the city of Boston of racism. They like O'Malley, and there's a few major cities, there's a few major markets that will do this. It's not enough that they cheer the guy they like, they do also have to belittle, demean, and attack the guy they, the, the one they don't. This is true of team sports or individual stuff. They're not the only ones, it's, that's not unique to Boston. I'd like, Philly is kind of this way, but Philly's also just, I feel like, the fact that more Philadelphia-based sporting events don't end in riots is kind of a miracle. Um, but, they, again, there's a little bit of this in there. Um, New York. Certain New York teams more than others. You'll get this. But, I say that to cover myself lest I be accused of leveling racial accusations at a large city and demographic. Because I... Sterling's been pretty unfairly in some cases, but been pretty thoroughly booed and rejected by the fan base since he won the belt, because he because of how he won it, and that wasn't his fault. Uh, but anyway, uh, to the right to the point here. Sterling's not great with distance. If you're if you're short, like if he can pick at you from the outside, he will, and he's actually pretty good at that. But he doesn't have a lot of great tricks for closing distance. Or for... I shouldn't say closing distance like that, because he's got a pretty good takedown, right? Or he comes out very aggressive and will just kind of bum-rush you into the fence. Guys who have troubled O'Malley in this space are more the guys who have something sneaky. Like, he'll think he's got a read on distance, and then either with very subtle footwork a little faint to set up a shift or something like that, they wind up closer than he expects, and that gives that and has given him problems. Sterling doesn't have that. I was a little surprised at the lack of wrestling from Sterling. Now, I didn't expect him to come out and just immediately fire the double leg. You can't do the most expected thing. That might have got him in real trouble. He But he only even tried a takedown with, like, 20 seconds left in the first round. Grabbed a single, ran it to the fence, and, you know, kind of stalled out the round, the last bit of the round there. Landed some clinch strikes, and it was enough for, it was enough for him to win the first round, I thought, because the first round was, it was a lot of, 
there was not a lot of um, immediate impact in anything that was happening. And those can be hard rounds to judge. But the distance really messed with him. He was not comfortable closing distance on O'Malley. And then to finish it, he's southpaw. He leans forward, throws a left hand, overextends. O'Malley slides back to his own right, gives up the outside foot position because he knows the angle he wants to take, and he knows the distance. He doesn't move far. He slides just far enough for that punch to fall short of his face and kind of brush up against his uh, chest and levels the boom with a counter right. Uh, Drops him, pounds him out with hammer fists and whatnot. There's some people who... I understand Aljamain Sterling's teammates being upset about the stoppage. The fact that there's been a little bit of a thing online lately is like, boy, this was a, this was an early stoppage, wasn't it? Like, no, no, it wasn't. It's a perfectly fine stoppage. I'm not saying you couldn't have let it go a few more shots. I'm saying it wasn't early. Um, this was a this was a fine stoppage. So, just for my thoughts on that. And, yeah, Sterling just... He never really got that... The distance. Never really got a feel for it. And that's... Against a guy like O'Malley, who's tall and long, and isn't that bad at fighting tall and long, you need that, man. You need something... You need weapons at distance to kind of keep him a little off balance. You need a good read on the range. And you need some kind of tricky stuff to help you close distance. Or, counterpoint, you need to not, like, you need to just be willing to get in there and get hit in order to accomplish it. And just a really unfortunate confluence of kind of what Sterling was trying to do, what he was able to do. And a few, again, some of those issues that he's had... I've got. I went back and rewatched some of Sterling's fights, and his his cage work, man. I don't mean cage wrestling. I mean again, ringcraft. It's been a bit. It's been a bit weaker for a lot longer than I remember. Like it's an area of a fighter's game that, unless they're very good at it, doesn't stand out to you unless you're really watching it. And on a, Sterling's cage craft. It's got some more issues than I think most of us realized. And that showed up here in a big way. Uh, No shortage of potential challengers for the new champion. Sterling would like an immediate rematch. Meritocratically, you could make the argument. Look, Sterling was the most successful bantamweight champion in UFC history. Let me listen to me very carefully there. UFC history he had the most he had tied the most successful title defenses in that division's history at three he had didn't he have the longest winning streak in the division's history he had nine in a row coming into this he had a really good yes he had a really good stat line for the division now had he won here i think the argument for him as best bantamweight of all time period you could maybe make it I'm not sure I would agree, but you could make the argument. Um, But if we... Look, there's... People forget. And 
I hate to I hate to be this guy because it it's some it's either a hipster it feels like a hipster thing to say or it's way too much old man get off of my lawn back in my day. But as a guy who was around when the WEC was the only promotion with guys under 155, and actually it might have run, it might have been active during a time when the UFC didn't have lightweight either. I'd have to double check that, so don't quote me. But there's a lot of revisionist history that likes to pretend that it, the stuff there didn't matter. It was some second-rate regional promotion and it only those divisions only gained credibility after the UFC absorbed WEC do not believe that that is an absolute load of crap WEC may not have been a worldwide touring brand but they had the best fighters at they had some of the best fighters at lightweight they had the best featherweights and bantamweights in the world competing in that organization do not believe otherwise do not let this well if it happened before or outside of the ufc it doesn't matter uh-uh. don't do it it's it's why it's really hard uh so for volkanovsky for example is volkanovsky the best featherweight fighter ever yeah i have no problem saying that there's only two other guys in that conversation and he beat both of them one of them three times. But does he have the resume and the longevity in the division to become greatest? Because you have to eclipse what Jose Aldo did in that respect. And I'm not sure he has at featherweight. You might feel differently. And fair enough. And I know there's a bunch of people out there who got real sour on Aldo for part of his UFC run. And I don't... I understand where you're coming from. But... The run Aldo had at featherweight, um, I still I still have a hard time saying Volkanovski surpassed that. I don't think Max Holloway surpassed it. Like Holloway beat Aldo twice. Yes, he did. Stopped him twice. No argument. Is you know, Max Holloway a better fighter in that particular respect than Aldo? You can make the argument. Aldo's run of dominance was better than Max's. Or, again, that one's real close, too. Like, it's hard because I know what Aldo did in that promotion, and I know how... It, it's just annoying that so many people try to ignore that that promotion existed. And the UFC doesn't help this, by the way, because they, they ignore it. Like, they pretend it didn't happen. Aldo's... I'm of the opinion, every one of both Aldo's and Dominic Cruz's... Um, title defense that in WEC should be counted in their title streak because Aldo had that belt until that promotion folded then he just brought it then he unified it and he became the first ever and just kept winning in the UFC ditto Cruz you have that continuity of title lineage it should be recognized as such and it's not and it's it's a little bit annoying but Anyway, the long and the short of that is I have a hard time putting Sterling ahead of Cruz. Not that Cruz right now is the best bantamweight in the world. He's not. And Cruz's career is also kind of a giant what if. Um, because he was so far ahead of the game. 
if he'd been if he hadn't gotten hurt, you know what could he have done? The fact that he did leave the giant legacy that he did even after the injury. This is relevant when I talk about Chris Weidman later too, so keep that in mind. Um, but the problem with Aldo wanting Aldo Al, Aljo. Part of the problem with Sterling saying, you know, I'd like an immediate rematch. I hate to say this because if we're just talking about, again, how the UFC occasional, the UFC's own line about what qualifies for an immediate rematch, by the, by the theoretical metrics that they put forth, Sterling would qualify for one. So did Tyron Woodley. He didn't get it. Um, and don't do the, well, you know, he got finished. So did frickin' Valentina. She's getting an immediate rematch. It's because he does not have fan support and the U- and not just that. Sometimes the UFC likes people who don't have fan support. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. But Sterling does not have a lot of fan support, and he's not exactly the favored son of the promotion. That means losing, especially getting finished, sorry, you do not have next. I don't know exactly who does. You have options here. Now, some of this is complicated by injury, because Sandhagen's recovering from tricep surgery, Umar's recovering from shoulder injury, uh, Cejudo's recovering from the shoulder injury. I think Marab had some kind of an injury he's dealing with. Marab should be, if you're not going to give Sterling an immediate rematch, for any number of reasons. If we if we throw out the immediate rematch potential, your next meritocratic contender is, in fact, Marab Dwalish really. And that... I don't know that they'll do it, because, again, I don't know what his timetable is. But Marab, he's short, but and he's going to get hit. If Marab fights O'Malley, Marab is going to get hit. Maybe O'Malley's power is too much for him. Wouldn't shock me. But if O'Malley can't, Marab is just... He'll force that man. He will just walk through the windshield to get to you. And Sterling wasn't willing to do that. And the one time he kind of tried, it it backfired. It, he was, you know, all out of sorts because of distance management. Marab doesn't care about that. He'll just get there to you. And if you put him down, fair play. But he's coming at you. And he will just wrestle you to death. And I think that... I'm not saying O'Malley can't win that fight, be very clear. But that's a fight that is very dramatically going to go one way or the other, my hunch. Either O'Malley just snipes him out quickly or Marab deals with that and gasses him with that absurd wrestling pace that he keeps. But so we don't know Marab's timetable. Then we get into people who may be a bit more available if a little further down. That you might have uh, you might have stuff with. Uh, the big one prior to the fight, this is so prior to the fight, O'Malley had mentioned that if I win and Marlon Chito Vera wins, I'd like that one back. Because Vera's the only guy who's beaten O'Malley. I'd like that one back. Then after the fight, he said, 
you know, I don't know that I have to give that guy the rub. You brought him up, but you entered him into this conversation, and now you're backtracking? What are we doing here, guy? Um, but that's an option. Piotr Jan would like... Jan's the least likely because of that loss to Marab. I do think... I did score Jan and O'Malley for Jan, for the record. But so that's something... There's directions you can go here. Somewhat complicating the situation is Sean O'Malley at the post-fight presser going, yeah, I'd like to box Gervonta Davis. Then he claims he doesn't even follow boxing, but he's heard the name of Tank. And I'm just sitting here with my head in my hands. Um, my man, Gervonta Davis would hurt you. Badly. Um, this wasn't going to be in my news segment, but let me just, for the same, for the sake of saying the same thing, um, so after the, uh, Nate Diaz-Jake Paul fight, their boxing match, um, Eddie Hearn was asked about it and was less than complimentary about the various, the skill level on display. Now, Hearn and Jake Paul have, you know, they've had a little back and forth, um, so, you know, I'm not expecting Eddie to be a, I don't want to say, he's not going to be charitable. Let me put it that way. Because you can be honest and harsh or honest and charitable, and there's ways to go about that. He's not in a, he's not really going to be charitable towards either Paul or, by extension, Diaz. Well, Diaz in res- responded by saying, I line up all your fighters and I'll beat them. And I just have to put my head in my hands again. My man, you got outboxed by Jake Paul. Any world-class professional boxer is going to hurt you so badly, it might change your life. Not for the better. The UFC should be embarrassed by this. And I mean that. You You had a guy who just won... Your title. And the first, one of the first things he says he wants to do is leave the sport. To make money. It's, it's ludicrous. But here we are. Because your pay structure is crap. And you... Look, I, I know there's some... Uh, I shouldn't say UFC homers. There's some people who are more sympathetic to the UFC's position in all this who listen to this show, and bless you. Thank you for listening. I'm not anti-UFC. I am more anti-exploitation. And the the UFC paying out less than 20% of their annual revenue to fighters is on the exploitative side of things. And now you've got federal law, or federal judges, at least one, who kind of agree with that sentiment. You don't get you don't get a, a judge that says you're you're um, you know, you qualify for injunctive relief if you're in a somewhat equitable position. It just doesn't happen. And here you have fighters your MMA fighters, your champion, your world champion, 
just saying, you know, the only way to make real money is to leave the sport. You're a billion-dollar organization. You're valued at multiple billions. About to be merged with another multi-billion-dollar organization valuation into something worth a valued at approximately $20 billion? And your world champion is saying, I need to box to make real money and have big fights. This should be the black eye of all black eyes. But here we are. How many years has it been now? I mean this. Like, not just Floyd and Connor. That kind of started the ball rolling, but we've just done this now. For a while, you know, you had Kamaru Usman saying, I want to box Canelo. That would have gone real bad for you, buddy. Real bad. Now you got... Dude, O'Malley calling out Davis. Oh, my... Man, there's two, there's only two things that are going to stop this. One of them's easier, but the other one is probably what's going to have to happen. The easy way to stop this is to pay MMA fighters more fairly. I mean, God, I hate agreeing with Jake Paul in some respect, but when he came out uh, not too I think it was this last week and said the baseline entry for entry into the UFC should be 50k. Um, he's not wrong. You got fighters out here every week begging for a $50,000 bonus to offset their 10 and 10 or 12 and 12 contract. If you came into the UFC on, uh, I think 50 and 50, you, you know what? Tell you what, let's even just say 25 and 25. If that was your baseline entry into the UFC, imagine how much, imagine what that would do for a lot of fighters. Just imagine it for a second. Dana White out here going, yeah, we did a seven point. This is one of the largest gates in the history of the venue. It was $7.2 million. Here's your 50K bonus, by the way, to Zhang Weili and Sean O'Malley. And your fight of the night was earlier. Yeah. He's going to ask for a something, a situation that will get him paid more. Boxing will pay him more. It was, but so you can pay him more. And this will stop. Or we have enough guys go and do this and get hurt. I don't mean lose. I mean get hurt. Floyd slept walked. Floyd just kind of slept walked through beating Connor. Because he was so... He didn't even need to really train. His base... Dude, Connor's baseline training. Not Connor. Floyd's baseline. Not even a fight camp. What he does regularly was more than enough to beat the crap out of Conor McGregor in a boxing match. And he did, by the way. That was not a close fight. But imagine for just a second that Sean O'Malley does get a match with a boxing fight with Tank. Tank would hurt him. I mean that. He would hurt him. And maybe that's what there's a lot of MMA guys who are either champions looking for a bigger payday or leaving the promotion looking for more money or whatnot. And they're looking at boxing 
Dude, there's a decent chance Tyson Fury does a does very bad things to Francis Ngannou. We're not talking about it a lot for because it's a little bit later in the year and other stuff, but if Tyson Fury really wants to, um, he could do a lot of damage to Ngannou. Like, you take that many blows to the head in that rapid a succession, and that's kind of what goes on here, and Fury's not the biggest power puncher in the world, but he's a large, he's an enormous man. There is power behind what he does. Javante Davis is, pound for pound, one of the harder punchers in the sport. He would do bad things. I mean, real bad things to Sean O'Malley. And maybe that's what's got to happen. Like, maybe this is the only other, this is the only other way. This might be the only other way that this kind of slows down or stops. Either they get paid more, or we get very public, very obvious demonstrations of just, not just how bad this is, but the real consequences. We like to pretend that, you know, MMA is more brutal than boxing. I'm not saying it isn't. But this notion that boxing does not catastrophically alter the quality of your life is horribly misguided. There's a lot of MMA fighters who tend to think, you know, I'm not getting elbowed. I'm not getting kicked. I'm not getting kneed. You know, I, I'm i not having to worry about wrestling so my knees don't have to get torn up as much. Yeah, sure, sign me up. And then, you know, a 150 punches to the head later. And that's... Not terribly una- inaccurate for some of these guys. Davis, not so much. Tank's not a big volume guy, but some of these, g- some of them, man. And your defense ain't there, and your footwork's not there, and your cardio is not lined up for three-minute rounds. You're gonna get hurt. And eh, well, that's again, that's kind of the state of bantamweight right now. Um. O'Malley's got a big following. I am not part of it. I do not understand it, but it exists. I mean, if you want to understand how much the UFC is going to try to strap a... First of all, Dana White afterwards going, there's no such thing as Dana White privilege. Buddy, you're a promoter. I get your job is lying, but... Yeah, bull. Bull. There's a lot of bull crap going on there. Um... Almost immediately after it happened, the UFC put this whole fight up for free on their YouTube channel. The UFC is... I shouldn't say they're trying to strap a rocket to O'Malley. Here's the problem with this. O'Malley built his fan base on his own. And most... Most MMA fighters that have fan bases do it on their own. The UFC is just a platform. You know, O'Malley's out there streaming and podcasting and YouTubing, and he's going out of his way to build up his fan base because the UFC doesn't do much for their fighters in that respect. And it's worked. He's become very popular. I, I don't pretend otherwise. So the UFC trying to capitalize on this and trying to act as a force multiplier for it going forward. Um, they'll probably try to do the Cheeto fight. Um, 
I think Cheeto will be ready by the proposed date. And I think they're going to try to keep him away from Marab. And they'll try, they'll use any, uh, I shouldn't say they'll use any excuse. They understand the opportunity that O'Malley presents, and I think they, given, given the choice between a fight that he is likely to lose to a guy that no one cares about, or a fight that, I mean, Cheeto's actually got a decent fan base. So, you know, whereas Marab is just, you know, Marab. Uh, That's kind of my hunch, but we'll see how things shake out. Who knows? Uh, That's And I don't know what... Sterling got asked about moving up to featherweight, and he responded, you know, if Sean O'Malley can do this to me, imagine what Volkanovski could have done to me. Fair point, sir. Very fair point. So, gonna reassess some things. I he's not getting an immediate rematch. There's, there's I every bit of the incentive structure, not the meritocratic side of things, but the incentive structure is against it. And that's a problem. That's a problem he's got a he I don't think he's gonna be able to overcome, so whether he stays or not, I don't know. That's a little bit up in the air, but you know, I give Sterling credit, man. He handled this about as about as classily as you can. Um, didn't take anything away from O'Malley. Didn't protest the stoppage. He got asked about it at the presser and said, eh, I thought it could have gone on longer, but he didn't. Like, he wasn't up in arms about it. Um, I, I just, he handled this as well as you could. And I want to give him credit for that. So, that's where we are at Bantamweight. Very talented division. Uh, and not sure how long O'Malley sits on top of it or not, but you better take him seriously if you're going to fight him. All right, co-main event, this. Uh, I don't. I almost don't know why this happened. Um, so Zhang Weili defeats Amanda Lemos via unanimous decision. 50, there was a 49-45, 50-44, and 50-43. I was 50-43, I believe. I gave her a 10-8 first and a 10-8 fifth. You, as for the 49-45, you could give the fourth to Lemos. I didn't. I don't think there's a terribly compelling case for her in the fourth, but it does exist, and it deserves to be acknowledged that it exists. Um, None of the... Here's the only close moment of this fight. In the first round, um, Zhang gets a pretty quick takedown, is beating up on Lemos against the fence. Lemos takes a pounding. Wall walks, gets double-legged, but as she's getting double-legged, she grabbed a ninja choke. And I have to say this because everyone and their dog thought it was a darse, because that's what commentary thought. Because... Uh, because Joe Rogan either legitimately didn't see that the arm wasn't trapped or didn't... I'm, I'm going to assume that he just didn't quite see in the heat of how rapidly that developed the specifics of it. And fair enough, commentary is hard. And Cormier either didn't know or just... Dude, Cormier was... God. 
I I don't like Cormier as a commentator. I don't think that's a secret at this point. Um, but he wasn't. He either didn't know enough to uh, correct or counter, or he just went a lot. Or I don't know. Not a Dars. Not an Anaconda. There was no arm trapped. Okay. The difference between an anaconda choke or a darce choke is the arm that uh, punches through, that goes around the neck. If it starts at the neck and comes through, and then you catch, again, catch your own arm. So if you if their neck is against your arm, that's an anaconda. If you catch the arm side, so if your arm is against their arm and then you hook up and then grab, that's a darce. If you don't have either arm and you just have that kind of, again, the figure four rear naked choke grip from the front, you have a ninja choke. In theory, if you're on the ground, it's more a power guillotine. I'm not going to get lost in semantics here. I'm calling it a ninja choke for the sake of clarity and consistency. You have a ninja choke, not a darse. I bring that up in no small part because the defense that Zhang used, I don't think would have been correct if she had been in a darse she gets the double leg, has um, Lemos catch it. The ninja choke is it's dangerous. It's not a good position. But Lemos doesn't catch full guard. Um, she only catches half guard. So Zhang gets to a side, pulls her leg out, gets to side control. Still not clear of the choke, mind you, because the side she has to go to is the same side as the arm that's choking. And if you... Um, it's a little bit like, again, because you have kind of a rear naked choke position with this, when you defend against the rear naked choke, you don't move your body and whatnot to the same side as the choking arm. Um, because if it's really locked in, if you get over there, you're just putting yourself into a bulldog choke. Like You're not actually addressing the issue. So you, you kind of turn towards the crook, of, you turn your like neck and head towards the crook of the arm while your hand fight is turning the other way gets more leverage going. But yeah, it's neither here nor there. Not that you can't actually look the other way and defend, but yeah. That's way too much in the weeds for this. But going that same direction, so she goes to that side and is not really out of the choke. It's the same kind of thing with a guillotine, by the way, a, a traditional guillotine. You need to get to the safe side, which is across the body, because um, if you want an example of this, uh, Frank Mir in Czech Congo. Mir grabs a guillotine, Congo gets to side control, but he's on the same side as the choke, and in, so instead of the forearm being across the throat... All you've done is moved off to the side, so you're now in kind of more rear naked choke position with your with the forearm and the biceps on either side uh, against the carotid arteries. And Mir puts him to sleep, because that's not the safe side. Well, again, that's kind of the side Zhang winds up passing to, and it, so she's still in danger. She knows she's in danger. She's not stupid. So part of the way she gets out is actually really cool. She throws knees to the body um, to induce movement. And once Lemos has to move to address the knees, Jean gets her head out, gets the back, proceeds to beat the crap out of her for longer. That's the only close moment in the fight. Um, Lemos lands a couple of punches in round two, nothing substantial. You could argue four because there's no grappling. I still gave it to Jean for just generally being more active. The final numbers for this are stupid. So, Zhang Weili turned in the second highest uh, strike total differential in UFC history here. 
Uh, final totals, let me double check. I want to make sure I get these right. So, total strikes. Total. Zhang Weili landed 296, which is very high. And Amanda Lemos landed 29. Zhang landed 250, more than like 250 more total strikes than Lemos. Dude, Amanda Lemos only attempted 68 total strikes. When you have landed, what, 231? When you have landed 231 more total strikes than your opponent even attempted? If we if we change that to significant, Zhang land 163 to 24 from Lemos. I mean... This was not a competitive fight. I give Lemos credit for being tough. I give her credit for never giving up. She got dropped in the fourth, in the fifth too. She got dropped hard. I give her credit for not quitting. I will. I will absolutely give her that credit. She was not ready for this, and that's very apparent. Uh, one, the UFC mentioned Dana White mentioned like we'd like to do China again. That that's some logistical stuff that goes into that, but. You've got Zhang Weili, and you've got a... I think the pres, my presumptive number one contender would be Yan Xiaonan. You've got two Chinese fighters who fighting for a UFC title, and I think that would be a first. I think that would be the first time you had two Chinese fighters, Chinese nationals, fighting for a UFC title. You, If you can put that in China, you do. That's just promotion 101. Uh, I don't know. Here's the thing about this. So, Zhang's striking is kind of interesting. She, she's got a nice Sanda-style sidekick, and uh, let's not get into... Please don't kill me for that one. But it is. Like, if you look at how she throws her sidekick, it is very much in the style of, uh, again, Wushu Sanda. Call it that. I, I think Sanda is perfectly acceptable, so... There's a difference in how different, and there is a difference in how different play, uh, styles throw their sidekicks. The traditional karate one is not the same as, dude, even Stephen Thompson. Like, if you look at Stephen Thompson talk about his sidekick, it's almost more a back kick if you want to get really technical and noodly. And prime, given that my kind of base for training is American Kenpo, we get noodly sometimes. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but we do. <laughs> Uh, his is almost more a back kick, and he comes from Kenpo, so, you know. Uh, but that's different. The Savat sidekick, uh, the, the uh, what is it, Chasse, is a little bit different. That's actually a touch closer to Sanda's. But once you've seen the Sanda guys throw it, or even people who, like, coach Sanda fighters and will just spar that way on occasion, it's it's very obvious when someone has that style of sidekick versus another one. Um, 
And hers is very Sonda. But uh, her power's more in her punches. She's, uh, when I say I'm not sure how much longer she's going to be champion, I would favor her over Yan. I don't think I favor her over Tatiana Suarez. Ya uh, Zhang can be out-wrestled. Uh, that was kind of what cost her in the Rose Namajunas rematch, was getting out-wrestled, especially later. And Suarez is, you know, a beast. So I don't know about that, but this was this was a wipeout. This was a wipeout. This was Lemos being not just a level below Zhang. This was like two levels, maybe three. Like you get blowed out this badly. I mean, Zhang's accuracy... Ian, 296 of 358. She was landing, like, she landed 80% of her strikes in the first, 80% in the second, 68, 62, and then 80 again. So, I don't know what that breaks. So, if we kind of average that out, we're what? High 70s? Dude, if you're landing 75% of your strikes... If that's your accuracy. I mean, they've they've incorporated this into her stats at this point, so hang on. Uh, or they haven't updated her career stats yet, because her career striking accuracy currently sits at 47%, which is actually a little bit on the low side. I should say a little on the low side. Hang on. You want to be close. You want to be like 50-ish. Um, a lot of guys are close. Like. You miss more than you land, as a general rule. Zhang landing a lot more than she missed. <laughs> um, oof. Yeah, she... that The performance here, in terms of her accuracy, was so lopsided, it's going to raise her, accu her average by a significant number. So, she should probably fight Yan Xiaonan next. And if they can make it in China, then cool. Lemos, yeah. She might rebound from this, but this was a this was a bad loss. All right, next up, uh, Ian Machado Gary defeated Neil Magdi via unanimous decision to 30-26 into 30-24. 30-24 is way too generous to Gary. Um, was I 30-20? I might have been 30-25. Um. So, they got some heat on this one between the two of them, because Magni... I have to yell about this. Not yell, but... So, Neil Magni, when asked about, you know, how he expects the fight to go and whatnot at some pre-fight press doohickey... Gary wasn't present, but, you know, doing some of this pre-fight media. He mentioned he was looking forward to, you know, that he's a dad now, so he's getting used to delivering... And he's going to give him, you know, the, the kind of whooping a father, like, something like this... Gary took exception to this because, so what, you beat your child? Like, oh, God. And look, Gary's trying to fire himself up and find an angle to generate heat for this because Neil Magny stepped in on a week's notice to replace Jeff Neal. And clearly Neil Magny is not admitting to child abuse. He's drawing a comparison here. I don't think Neil Magny beats his three-year-old. Just throwing it out there. He might, and if he does, screw him, for the record. 
but I don't think he does. And Gary then, you know, got bent out of shape about it, and, you know, I, this is justice for your kid kind of crap, and I'm just, uh it's pathetic. But I wish I could leave it at that and say it was just a stupid angle that Gary cocked up to try and, you know, motivate himself and generate interest, and Magni just, you know, making a, making a reference that, you know, anyone with half a brain knows what he's actually saying, but this is fighting, so here we are. But then, because MMA is MMA, people got on Twitter and were like, uh, like Brendan Allen, I think, was the one that was just doing the, you know, I occasionally whoop my kids and nobody says anything and he's just angling for attention more than anything else. And how are we here, by the way? Can I just, for the record, how are we here? In the MMA space, where we're now debating, again, like, child abuse? Look, I'm not here to do the... I'm not here to weigh in on this, okay, as a general rule. One, I'm not a father. I have no children. I hope to remedy that at some point. I've got to get married first. And that's a process at this point, so, you know, here we are. Sorry, use that too much. I'm not here to say that most, like the vast majority of the scientific literature indicates that, you know, that spanking your kid is not really all that useful. And I personally tend to fall more on the line that... Physical discipline should be something you resort to ideally never. Uh, Look, I got spanked a couple of times as a kid. I'm not... My issues, such as they exist, have nothing to do with that. Uh, I don't think my parents abused me. (laughs) Or any of my brothers, for that matter. That's, but it's not a thing that, you know, you should almost always be able to find a better way to go about this, but because MMA is MMA, here we are, and you know what, somebody on Twitter, I apologize, I don't remember your handle, you've probably got a bigger platform than I do, so I'm not trying to steal in that respect. But when you look at how fighters conduct themselves in some respects, in these kind of like narrative things, somebody mentioned that, you know, fighters are trapped in an abusive relationship with their promoter and they can't do anything about it. And when you put, when you put a lot of the, and this is somewhat aggregated behavior, of a lot of different people with their own sets of baggage independent of, you know, their relationship with the UFC. Fighting does not tend to attract the most well-adjusted people. Not saying everyone who fights is a monster, because that's very much not true. But for most people in the world, fist fighting for a living is not 
goal number one. It's it's something you do when certain other avenues are closed to you for whatever reason. Unless you're really unless you're really weird. I mean, BJ Penn certainly didn't need to fight. He just had an aptitude and the temperament for it, to his detriment at this point. But you know, it's not impossible. I don't mean to imply that it is, but there's a reason most fighters come from the backgrounds they come from. Because other avenues are not available to them. And if you can't do anything else, you can fight for a buck. Literally. And that's... That might be sad, but it is reality. Anyway. Um... The point there, I, point there, remember my train of thought. If you look at the behavior of UFC fighters in through the lens of they're in an abusive relationship, boy, does a lot of that make more sense. I'm just throwing that out there. It makes more sense. The lashing out, the dying on certain hills. They can't do anything to the UFC. They can't say anything. So they lash out. They lash out at media members, partially because the UFC has said that's okay. So we ingratiate our, we get to, A, ingratiate ourselves to the entity that has almost supreme power over us, and B, vent our frustrations at being in this position all at once. That's that's pretty classic, behaviorally. And so, again, you lash out at the media, they lash out at anything that they don't agree with, or even if, even if they n- might know that they're wrong. Just, y- you have to get this out somehow. And I'm, I'm just saying, some of the behavior makes more sense when you start putting that relationship with the UFC into a slightly different context. Not all of it, and I'm not... And that might make it sound like I'm rooting for the UFC's downfall. I am not in that respect, but if you're at a position where you're rooting for the interests of the billion-dollar company over the fighters, you need to take a look in the mirror. And that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the UFC. You can. I do. But, look, it doesn't... It doesn't mean you can't shop at Walmart. You can also acknowledge, and I'm not knocking on Walmart here, I'm using this as as an example. You can also acknowledge, hey, problem, sometimes with, you know, how workers are treated. Or, you know, you can still use Amazon. And say, boy, employees from people employed by Amazon are getting a raw deal. And that should change. I can watch the UFC. I can enjoy the product. And I can also say, fighters are getting screwed. If you can't, dude. I know MMA fandom is cyclical. I've been through like three generations, three or four generations of MMA fans as a depending on how you want to categorize when they come in and when they fall out, I've seen different generations come and go, and some stay the whole way, and some don't, and some stay a little longer than others, and what have you. 
But I'm, I'm aware of the, the burnout that occurs in MMA fandom. And lately the burnout is coming less from product fatigue and more from people seeing how the sausage is made. A lot of this has become very public over the last, you know, 18 months, two years. And a lot of people have started doing the, have kind of gone like, I'm out. I'm not comfortable with this. And I, whether they're, whether this is a moral stance or just a, I was a little burned out anyway. And now seeing how this is done, seeing the details, no thanks. They're, they're cashing out. Um, the UFC doesn't care that much at the moment because, one, they can still kind of tour and make up for that. Two, they're getting giant checks from ESPN, regardless of content quality. And, look, that's the big one, right? They get giant check from ESPN if they hit a minimum number of events. They don't care. They... The UFC does not actually care if anyone watches. They care if you pay for your ticket, and I think they get... Like, they even get guaranteed money for the pay-per-views they put on behind ESPN+. Plus. Uh, equivalent to, I think it was like 500,000 buys. The ESPN just pays them for that. And then you... I don't know the exact financial breakdown beyond that, but they don't actually care. <laughs> they don't care. If anyone, wa- they don't care if anyone outside of the arena watches the upcoming card this Saturday. They don't care. They don't care how many people log on to ESPN Plus like, until their contract negotiations come up. They don't care because they're getting a check regardless of how well it does. So, yeah. Anyway, MMA is it, we get into the dumbest. We, we, we have the dumbest debates in MMA spaces. We just do. Um, as for the fight itself, uh, yeah, Gary beat the crap out of Neil. Here, two things I want to say about Gary. Well, one thing about Neil, a couple of things about Gary. One thing about Neil Magny. My man has been a sucker for leg kicks his entire career. There's just only been a handful of guys who have really punished him for it. Gary is now one of them. Dude, Lorenz Larkin back in the day tore him up. With leg kicks. Um, both Rafael Dos Anjos and Gilbert Burns. Like, they got their takedowns off. I know D- RDA did. RDA just punted that lead leg, dropped Magny, jumped on him. Then got the arm triangle. Leg kicks have been kind of a weakness of his for a long time. A long time. Um, so, about Gary. I wish he'd stop trying to be Conor McGregor. On the off chance Ian Gary or anyone like in his circle um, kind of has his ear or anything, let me, I'm not the only one to say this, but let me give you some advice here, my, my guy. You're starting to gain popularity. I mean, he had the stupid line about, I'm, I'm carrying this card. If it wasn't for me, you know, no one in Europe would buy this. No, my man. Sean O'Malley is like 10 times your followers on on social media. A whole zero more, if not more. You weren't carrying this. But MMA has more in common with pro wrestling than almost anything else. 
and some people don't like that because MMA fans still have inferiority complexes about um, the legitimacy of the sport and don't like being associated with a performance rather than a competition. Which is ridiculous. I mean, for the same reason a bunch of pro wrestling fans, there's a bunch of them don't like being associated with MMA because suddenly they're reminded that, oh, one of the major players in one of the major companies had a couple of real fights and thoroughly got demolished. And a lot of the guys you cheer for, are you, you cheer for them because of the performance and the character, not their actual ability to do anything. One of the champions in WWE got double-legged cleanly by a very out-of-shape fan. But, hey, world champion. Sorry, my relationship with professional wrestling is odd at the moment. Anyway. You know what? So I don't get accused of double talk or anything. One of those was a reference to CM Punk. The other was a reference to Seth, Roll- Seth Rollins. Neither of whom I am a fan of. In either combat sports or professional wrestling, for that matter. Anyway, moving on. The problem is MMA, especially fighters, have not yet learned what it took pro wrestling, in fairness to pro wrestling, it took them a while to learn it too. MMA should have learned this by now, but they won't for any because they don't like taking lessons from pro wrestling. Here's the lesson, guys. If you're trying to be a knockoff of a, of a successful act, you will fail. Straight up, you want to know how many... There is a graveyard of failed clones of successful gimmicks in pro wrestling a great the wastelands of verdun right you how many wannabe rick flares were there a million how many wannabe hogan's a million how many wannabe rocks a million how many wannabe austin's a million you cannot be a knockoff of a better act Doesn't mean you can't have similarities, but the key to pro wrestling, and if you're in MMA, this is the key to MMA popularity. One, in MMA popularity, you do kind of have to win. So that's part of it. The key to presentation popularity is to be yourself turned up to 11. Look at Sean O'Malley. Aljamain Sterling called him a Conor McGregor wannabe. That is a wild misread on Sean O'Malley. Yes, is O'Malley arrogant? Yeah, most fighters are. Shock. Especially the successful ones. They're arrogant. Sean O'Malley is not a Conor McGregor clone. Ian Gary is doing a bad Conor McGregor impression. And the negative thing about this is when he stops... On the occasions you just get Ian Gary being Ian Gary, he actually works. Like, his presentation works. But you can see the switch flip in his head where he kind of does the, oh, right, I have to be Connor. 
Let me quote Connor. Let me ape this bit from Connor. Let me. He was doing that at the press conference, and it was pathetic. It was pathetic. When he's just himself, the the difference is night and day. My man, you're at a point when your natural kind of budding popularity based on your success can either go higher or start curdling. If you keep trying to be Connor, it's going to curdle. You're not Connor. Heck, Connor isn't even Connor at this point. But it still kind of works for Connor as much as we roll our eyes at all the stuff he says because we know it doesn't mean anything. He's still being himself. When you're yourself, this will work. You don't have to be a Connor clone. Please don't. Find yourself, find your voice, and turn that up. If you want to, I don't know how many people here watch professional wrestling at the moment, but contemporary, you want an example of this in the contemporary landscape? Austin Theory is doing a bad John Cena impression. Not in the exact mannerisms and whatnot, but that's kind of the that's kind of the thing he's doing. It's a bad John Cena impression, and everyone knows it, and it's not actually working for him. Then there's L.A. Knight, who is, people are complaining that he's, you know, this weird mix of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. But everything he does is genuine. Like, look, did those two bleed into his presentation? I think by his own admission, they did. But he's not doing a rock impression. He's not doing an Austin impression. He's found how to turn up himself. And does it look a little bit like some of his influences? Yeah, it's going to. That's somewhat, that's inevitable. And there's going to be some Connor influences on Gary, I'm sure. But trying to do him one-to-one is not going to do you any favors. You need to find your voice and your personality and turn that up. Not be a loud wannabe Connor. That will not work for you long term. It will fail you. As for the fight, again, he just tore him up with calf kicks. Here's kind of my problem. And Gary did the, no, no, I I showed that I'm the best striker. That was three rounds of domination. If you've got a literal one-legged guy... Out there, you should be able to put him away. Gary's inability to reliably place damage once he had his opponent hurt, that's, uh... He still won, and he won wide. But that's a trait you need to fix. Um, I've said this before about a few other guys, because talking leg kick specifically, but this works for any technique you want to talk about. There... There's an assumption that, okay, I can stop you with leg kicks. Okay, but if you don't, what do you build off of them? If your response in this case is, well, he built 10-8 rounds, okay, fair enough. But by the time you get a guy dropping and then hopping around on one leg, and you can't find a finish there, this is something you need to work on. And he's plenty young. This is something he can work on. 
this would be one of the things I would try to work on with him. Okay, you if you're not going to get the one-hitter quitter, you've got to be able to build off of hurting someone to place damage elsewhere. You've got good leg kick. You, you, you had the guy hurt on leg kicks badly. Okay. What do you do with that? Do you follow him down? You very you did not assiduously. Do you leg kick him back to the fence, get him hopping, open him up to the head, and then dig body shots? No, you didn't. You kept throwing a few shots to the head, but his defense held up. And then he kind of circled away, and you had to retrack him back down. Like, There's a lot of maturation and seasoning to the decision-making here that needs to come along for Gary. Which, given his age, is not actually that surprising. I'm, you know, Neil Magny's hard to get out of there, especially with strikes. Um, I think the only wasn't the only other guy who finished him with strikes. Um, I know Larkin did. Who was the? Has anyone else? Submission decision. Ponzinibbio stopped him with strikes. And then Larkin, and yeah, that's it. Those are the only guys who have stopped him with strikes at all. I feel like you kind of needed to build a little more of your game plan around that. You know, again, being able to go up and down, build off of the offense you have, rather than kind of leave it as an end unto itself. But he called out Stephen Thompson, and it's not an unreasonable call out. Dana White after the presser. Oh, God. So for how many months now has Dana White come out and said, you know, we don't match make right the night of? Comes out here, not going to waste a chance to bury Stephen Thompson. He goes, yeah, we called Stephen Thompson. He turned down the fight. But we don't match make the night of. Right, Dana? Right? Man, Thompson pissed them off. And it's unfortunate, but he did. And so they're going to do stupid stuff like this. Uh, Magny, you know, he's been around for a while, but he's on the other side of it. And Gary's still got some stuff to work on, but he's moving up. And fair play to him. Uh, Mario Bautista defeated DeMond Blackshear via unanimous decision to 29-28-30-27. Not much here. Um, Blackshear stepped in on very short notice, like a week's notice, to fill in for Cody Garbrandt. Um, solid enough win for Bautista. I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this fight. It just doesn't stick in the mind. Um, also, Bantamweight kicking off the main card. Marlon Vera defeated Pedro Munoz via unanimous decision, 230-27 to 29-28. I gave Munoz the second, but I gave Vera one and three, and one was close enough. Um, Vera's still kind of a slow starter. I thought he did the more quality work in the first, and that's what uh, got that round to him. Two, he did decent work, but Munoz turned up the volume a bit more that round and kind of, you know, I thought, edged it out. Third round, Vera by a mile. Just jabbed Munoz into oblivion. Um, because of the circumstances, Vera might get a title shot off of this. I don't hate his chances versus O'Malley in a rematch. I'm not sure I love them, but I don't hate them. Uh, you know, this was a fun little fight. It wasn't fight of the night, man. Your fight of the night came relatively early on, and it was going to be a tough one to beat. But that was the main card. Prelims. I got to get faster through this stuff. <laughs> Don't want to be here for two hours. We're already over an hour. Um, Brad Tavares defeated Chris Weidman via unanimous decision 30-27 across the boards. Um, 
So, fun couple of stats about Brad Tavares, if you don't mind. This was his 23rd UFC fight. Coming into this fight, in 22 UFC fights, do you know how many stoppage wins he had? He had two. Dos. Um... This was about as safe a fight as you were going to get, is kind of the point there. And Weidman, I appreciate him getting back here. I really appreciate him getting back here. But he's almost 40. He's lost, he lost six of eight coming into this, so he's lost seven of nine now. Um, he's had a boatload of injuries. Dude, even on his way up to the title when he was on his very good run. And I need to say it out loud just to remind myself of the timeline. But his first, his title wins over Anderson Silva, both of his title wins over Anderson Silva, actually. Because he won the belt and then defended against Anderson. Those happened pre-Reebok deal. That's how long ago they were. Um, and he had a, he had a lot of injuries um, in the run up to his title fight to his championship run. They weren't chronic injuries, but you know it wasn't uncommon to hear about him being injured. So he's dealt with a lot of those. He's almost forty. He's not in a good place you know, overall. And Dana mentioned after the fight that he you know they thought. Um, he might have uh, suffered a knee injury in this fight. Uh, either an ACL or an MCL kind of thing. If that's true, and I'm not in the business of taking Dana White at his word anymore, haven't been for some time, but if he has suffered that kind of a knee injury, he needs to be done. Like, I'm, so- I'm sorry your career ended on the streak that it did, considering how great he was on the ascendancy and into his title reign. And if you missed that part of Weidman's career, you missed out. He was so good. He was so good. Um, but now, if he doesn't have a serious knee injury, I still think he ought to he ought to seriously consider hanging him up. Like, I don't know who would be in a comparable position to him in the UFC middleweight division right now. I, I don't know what his fun old guy fight is to retire on. Right? I don't know. Um, if Rockhold were still with the UFC, actually, because they're both kind of washed. If that fight were to Because that fight changed Weidman's career. He threw one wheel kick, ill-advised. Rockhold got his back, got him down, and beat the crap out of him for the rest of that round. They sent him out there again, and he just got the crap beat out of him some more, and he has never really been the same. I know he looked, you know, he looked good against Romero. He was, yeah, he went around. And, you know, oh, he was on route to winning the decision, and then he got flying need. Okay. You and I remember that fight a little bit differently. I actually had it 1-1 going into the third. 
and but man, if you can't if you can't beat Brad Tavares, I don't know what we're doing. Um, as for the technical stuff on the fight, Tavares landed nasty calf kicks, similar to Gary. Different kind of perspective here, but similar. He got Weidman to, to switch stance. Like, he hurt that left leg so bad, he made him go southpaw. Here's the problem, though. He didn't, like, Tavares didn't seem to have offense ready for Weidman when Weidman was southpaw. If you're going to kick somebody's leg like that, you need to be able to capitalize on their adjustment to it. And he kind of wasn't. I mean, he won all three rounds, and this is just an observation in general. Um, but Weidman needs to be done sooner rather than later. See, uh, Gregory Rodriguez. I Somebody brought this up. To, I heard it somewhere. It might have been Aaron Bronstetter on Morning Combat. But Gregory Rod, uh, Rodriguez is Brazilian, so his nickname shouldn't be Robocop. It should be Hobocop. <laughs> that amused me. Uh, he knocked out Dennis Tallulin with elbows from... Uh, back mount, 143 of the first. Initially, my thought was the elbow that lands that starts everything going wrong is is illegal. It hits the back of the head. The question is like, where does it start? Is it because if if Rodriguez starts throwing that elbow at a legal target and then the other guy moves and makes it illegal, that's actually that's not a foul in the same way as like deliberately hitting the back of the head and and in that circumstance I can kind of see that Tallulah might have moved around enough to obscure to muddy the waters but that basically shut Tallulah's lights off he then like one more elbow when he was already unconscious Just brutal stuff from Gregory Rodriguez um so Kurt, uh, one of our tough... The next two fights are our tough finale fights. Uh, Kurt Holobo catches Austin Hubbard with a really nice triangle choke. Uh, 239 of the second. Um, Holobo gets the back. As Hubbard's escaping, he grabs an arm. As Hubbard is escaping that, he falls right into a triangle choke. Uh, really nice stuff from Holobo here. Really nice. And in your fight of the night... The bantamweight tough finale, Brad Katona beats Cody Gibson, 229-28 to 30-27. 30-27 is not a good scorecard. Gibson had the first. Um, this was this was nuts. This was all action. Back and forth, momentum swings. These two beat these two hit each other a lot. Uh, what were the old, what were the final statistics here actually? Hang on. Yeah, so total strikes, uh, Brad Katona 173 of 327. Uh, Cody Gibson, 169 of 273. These two went to work. Um, I kind of thought, again, I was wrong, I think, on both of those predictions. Uh, again, I didn't have a great night that way, on that respect. But fun fight. Um, Dana intimated that uh, Gibson will be st- will be sticking around in the UFC, too. He deserved it. Um, yeah, good fight. Fight of the night. Absolutely deserved it. Uh, fun fight. At middleweight, um, Andre Andre Petrovsky beat Gerald Mershart via split decision, 29-28. Uh, Petrovsky's an odd fellow. He's got decent power, but I don't think... I might have scored this one for him, but 29-28 either way is fine. 
Um, like round one, I think went to Petrovsky. Round three, pretty clearly went to Mershart. Two was close enough, or one was close enough, and then two was to Petrovsky. I don't remember. Um, Petrovsky, he's got decent power, but his delivery system's all over the place. And his cardio isn't great if he can't, if he's not on top. He's okay wrestling and grappling if he's the one on top of it, but if he's not, it, fa it actually drains him pretty quickly. Um... After the fight, he mentioned he's still trying to fight Bo Nickel. I've... I wouldn't hate that fight necessarily, but Nickel seems to be like they're, they're trying to do stuff with him, and Petrovsky is just kind of a guy. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and you you could very easily make the case that Mershard actually won this fight. Uh, women's flyweight, Natalia Silva defeated Andrea Levy in a decision 30-27 across the board. Silva just, they fought at kickboxing distance, and Silva just kind of tore Lee up from there. And kicking everything off, Karini Silva guillotine-choked Marina Moros, uh, 4.59 of the first. Nice guillotine from Silva to get things done at the end there. Um, she was better than Moros everywhere. Uh, yeah, I mentioned already, but your fight of the night was Katona and Gibson. Performances, uh, O'Malley and Zhang. Who should... I almost feel like giving champions a 50k bonus should be something they don't do because that shouldn't... That much shouldn't matter to a UFC champion, but, you know, here we are. Uh, mentioned already the gate, like 7.24 million. Good event for Boston. Uh, yeah, my full report, MMAZona411mania.com. Give it a read if you are so inclined. Much appreciate it. All right, uh, moving on. UFC on ESPN Plus 83 will be early Saturday morning from the um, Singapore Indo Stadium in Kalong, Singapore. Main event is going to be sad. Just, it's it's going to be sad. Uh, Max Holloway and the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. I said before that if the, Jung is kind of looking to make this his retirement fight, this is the last of the three greatest featherweights that he hasn't fought. No, I don't include Connor in that list. But he fought Jose Aldo for the belt and lost. He fought Volkanovski for the belt and lost. The only other of the three great featherweights is, that he hasn't fought is Max Holloway. If he wants this to be his retirement, it's not in South Korea, but it's eh, I mean, sort of close enough. It's it's a flight. How long a flight is that, actually? I don't know. But, you know, since the UFC doesn't seem like they're going to be going to Japan or Korea again in the near future, this if this was as close as they could get him, then, well, fair play. But I'm not, like, he's going to lose. Max Holloway is still great. <laughs> and... Jung is past it, and I'm going to be sad. I, I I can live with this being his retirement fight to, you know, the last great featherweight he hasn't fought, okay? I'm not going to pretend that this is a terribly competitive fight. Unless Max has horribly slipped for reasons unknown to anyone, 
Because Jung's still got some power. But it's Max Holloway. Like, this isn't a hard pick. I just hope it doesn't turn into a very sad fight. That's all I'm hoping. I might feel sad about it because, you know, dude, Jung gave us some barn burners. But, yeah. I'm not telling you to gamble on this one, but Max Holloway is an easy pick. Co-main event, Anthony Smith and Ryan Spann. Um, man, Ryan Spann is so up and down. He's had some good wins. And then he's had... I mean, these two fought before in 21 and main evented. And Smith choked him out in the first round. I think Span at his best can win this fight. I mean, Smith's on a two-fight losing streak. Ankalaev stopped him and then he couldn't do a whole lot against Johnny Walker. But... I don't know, I just... I have a hard time seeing why... If Span comes out and can land some punches, he can change the complexion of this. My hunch is this looks fairly similar to their first fight. Just kind of a hunch. Might be very wrong on that one. This is another fight, by the way. Like This one's going to be dramatic one way or the other. Both Smith and Span tend to be dramatic fighters in that respect. Like They don't win or lose small. But I'm still going to lean towards Smith. Uh, Featherweight, you know, not a terrible fight here. Giga Chikadze and Alex Caceres. Um, Chikadze's been out for a while. He lost that uh, Calvin Cater fight in January of 22. Really good fight. But he's been out since then. Um, he had some injury. Yeah, he was supposed to fight Sadiq Youssef in September of that year. Um, I, I, I'm not going to be one of these guys who pretends that Caceres is like the worst guy in the world anymore. There was a time period when you could, how long ago was this, by the way? Hang on. If we look at like 2011, maybe you could argue in like 14, but definitely in like 11 or so, you could clearly argue that um, Caceres was the worst fighter in the UFC. He's not anymore. Um, he's had a pretty good run, actually. He had a pretty good winning streak stopped by Sadiq Youssef. He's won his last two of uh, Julian Rosa and Daniel Pineda. I'm going to pick Chikadze here. I just... They're going to strike this one out for the most part, and that plays more to Chikadze than it does to Caceres. Uh, Bantamweight, Rinya Nakamura and Fernie Garcia. Um, Nakamura is making his uh, second appearance in the UFC. His UFC debut was February of this year. He knocked that... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He finished that um season, uh, the Road to the UFC thing. The Lewis and Spivak card. He knocked uh, Toshiomi Kazama out in 33 seconds. Um, he's only got one decision in his career. He's, uh, I don't like guys getting it. I've said this before. Like Guys coming into the UFC with less than 10 fights is a little bit... Yeah. Like, I'm never sure of the thought process there. Um, Garcia, somewhat by contrast. He's fought in the UFC before. 
Um, he is 10 and 3. 0 oh, and 2 in the UFC. Lost it to Journey Newsom and Brady Heastand. This is kind of winner go home for Garcia and a little bit of a setup for Nakamura, given that they're um, kind of in the general vicinity of Japan. So, uh, women's flyweight Aaron Blanchfield and Tyler Santos. This should be higher on the card. Um, I'm going Blanchfield. I'm just look. I'm not trying to discount Tyler Santos. I was one of the people who said, "Hey, by the way." You should take her chances against Valentina Shevchenko seriously. And then they, uh, you could argue she won that fight. I think I scored it for Shevchenko, but very close fight. And she's back actually for the first time since that fight. That was June of 22. Um, did she have an injury or something? Yeah, she was supposed to fight Blanchfield um, in February of this year uh, when Andrade stepped in. Um... Her corner men were denied visas. Huh. Yeah, I, dude, Blanchfield is like... I think very highly of Blanchfield, and I tend to think she will be champion at some point. I think... I'm, I'm picking her here over Santos, but... good. The winner of this should be your next title challenger. Um... Whichever one of them it is. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going with Blanchfield. And a heavyweight fight because, oh, God, there's two of them in a row. Why? <laughs> Why? Um, Junior Taffa and Parker Porter. Hang on. Junior Taffa, not Justin Taffa. Um, they're brothers, if memory serves. Junior lost his UFC debut to Muhammad Usman. Um, Porter is very up and down in the UFC, 14 and 8 overall, 4 and 3 in the UFC, broke a two-fight losing streak, he beat Braxton Smith, I don't know. Yeah, Porter, I guess. Dude, Junior Toffa's got five fights. Still don't like guys coming into the UFC that early in their careers. That's the main card, that's for the prelims. Uh, heavyweights, Waldo Cortez Acosta and Wukas Breschke. Um, the UFC liked Cortez Acosta. He lost his last fight. Um, Breschke, it's not Breschke. Breschke. Yeah, they're giving him kind of a layup here. He's 0-2, losses to Martin Badai and Carl Williams. They're trying to get Cortez Acosta back on track, and he probably will. Uh, let's see, the other half of, I mentioned him already, but Toshiomi Kazama and Garrett Armfield. That was Armfield. 8-3, and 0-1 oh in the UFC, David Onama beat him. And Kazama here, he's 10-3 and three overall. Again, he lost the, the fight for his, in his UFC debut. He's got a decent overall record, though. Let me go with Kazama, actually. This feels It feels like they're kind of, again, trying to sort of get him on track. Um, are we middleweight for this next one? Yes, we are. Chidi Njikawani, who came into the UFC on a couple of pretty violent finishes in his first two fights, then promptly got beat by Gregory Rodriguez. 
He cut. That's the one. That was the fight that had that giant cut on the right between Rodriguez's eyes, and then lost to Albert Duraev his last time out. Um, he's fighting Mikhail Oleksijuk, and Oleksijuk lost to Kyle Bahalio. I I actually think I'm gonna go with Oleksijuk here. This is a close. This is a well-matched fight. Let me put it that way. But I'm gonna lean towards Oleksijuk. Uh, Song Kanan and Rolando Bedoya. Song, again, a little bit up and down in the UFC. Man, he dropped Gary pretty bad when they fought. He went on to lose that fight. Uh, Griffin's, Max Griffin stopped him. Lost Alex Morono. He needs a win. Um, Bedoya, he's been in the UFC at least once, right? Uh, he's Peruvian. Yeah, lost his UFC debut to Chaos Williams. That was a close fight, actually. I remember that fight. Um, yeah, those two went at it. I might actually lean towards Bedoya here. Yeah, I'm going to. Might be very, very wrong, but I'm going to. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So what? Uh, welterweights, Billy Goff and Yusaka Kenoshita. Let me have a look here real fast. Uh, Kenoshita is 6-2. and two. I believe he's fought in the UFC, yes. Um, Adam Fugit stopped him. Uh, whereas Goff... 8-2. and two. I want to say it's his debut. Yes, it is. On a six-fight winning streak? Okay. Um, hmm. Kind of a tough one there, actually. Yeah, let me go with Goff. Uh, let's see. Women's flyweight. Uh, Leong Na. Or Na Leong. Yeah, Na Leong Na is her family name. Um, she's fought in the UFC a couple of times. Yeah, lost them both. Uh, Ariane Carnalose and Silvana Gomez Juarez. Uh, she's been out for a bit. Yeah, a little over a year. Um, she's fighting JJ Aldrich. That's a tough draw. Aldrich is, she's not unbeatable, but she's hard to beat. On a two-fight losing streak, though, to Aaron Blanchfield and Ariane Lipsky. Aldrich is usually just kind of solid. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'll go with Aldrich. I think this is mm, this is kind of the fight she tends to win, but if she loses this... And then, kicking everything off, we have Seungwoo Choi. Um... Who has lost his last three fights. Uh, to Alex Caceres, Josh Kulabau, and then Michael Trezano. He needs a win. Um, he's fighting Jarno Erdens. Who is Croatian? Netherlands. Dutch. Dutch, Dutch. Okay. No, no, sorry. Didn't get a good look at the flag when I clicked on his profile. I saw it better. I'm like, no, that's not Croatian flag. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of places that have 
similar uh, flag structure. Hang on, I might be making a complete fool of myself. No, no, I'm okay. I like there's the there's the crest in the middle of the Croatian flag, but that's that's the primary difference. Okay, the Slovakian flag. That's a little bit. Yeah, okay. I know too much about flags. It's kind of weird. Um, Aaron's lost his UFC debut to William Gomez. Uh, about a year ago, actually. He's been out for a bit. L had a fight with David Onama fall through. And let me take a quick look at Choi here. This is Sting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. 3-5 and five in the UFC. Jeez. I mean, look. His first couple of fights were Movsar Evloyev and Gavin Tucker. Like, those were rough draws. Uh, the Zalal win and the Erosa win were actually pretty good. And the Kulabau fight was close. Um, hmm. Let me go with Troy, but not going to be too surprised if Aaron pulls this one off. And yeah, that's the card. Early Saturday morning, again, 3 a.m. my time, prelim start. I will be covering you in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so stop by, say hello. I'm going to need all the support I can get. I might have basically cut soda out of my diet. I might have to uh, grab a caffeinated beverage for that one. Again, I'm just going to be up for like 24 hours, so yeah, that'll be fun. Hopefully the fights are good, right? Let's hope. Uh, only bit of news I have for this week. Um, we got announced Kevin Holland versus Jack Della Maddalena being added to the September 16th card. That's headlined by the rematch between Alexa Grosso and Valentina Shevchenko. They're calling it uh, like Noche UFC um, because it's being held on Mexican Independence Day. So, um, Good fight. No complaints about the fight. Um, Going to lean towards JDM there, but Holland's... Got some interesting dimensions to him, and he hits hard enough that he's going to keep JDM honest. So, uh, good fight, good addition to the card. All right, like I said it's been a slow news week, so let me check Twitter or X or whatever it is, and we will see if anything new is broken. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. All right, nope, nothing new seems to have broken. So let's move on, shall we? Uh, plugs. Uh, Damn You Hollywood is now going to be basically a Monday podcast. We used to be a Tuesday institution because stuff was on Mondays. Stuff is now not really on Mondays, so we kind of got moved over there. So This Monday, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and I will be talking about Blue Beetle. A sort of bomb that nobody asked for. <laughs> I feel bad for that movie. I haven't seen it yet. I will, of course, watch it before we review it, but that's uh, what's on Damn You Hollywood. Last week, myself, Mark Ra on Damn You Hollywood, myself, Mark Radulich, Pat Mullen, and Dorian Price got together and we reviewed The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which we were rather complimentary of and is sadly not doing well. Um, kind of a shame uh, that it couldn't quite find an audience. It's not a bad movie. Anyway, so that's what's up for that. Um, this week, what do I got? What do I got? What do I got? What do I got? Okay. Uh, MLW stuff on Thursday, per usual. WWE SmackDown on Friday. UFC on Saturday. And I will be covering AEW's All-In event Sunday. So, busy week for me this week. 
So if you care about professional wrestling again, I cover MLW, WWE, and occasionally AEW, and I got the call for All In, so I assume that means at least two other people couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm usually third or fourth on that list for uh, short-notice call-ups, but yeah, I can do it, so I will be. So Sunday, I'll have All In, and then I'll do this show, reviewing UFC on ESPN plus 83, and... Yeah, we're previewing UFC on ESPN 53. Uh, the UFC's return to Paris, France, headlined by Cyril Gaon and Sergei Spivak. How's the rest of that card look? Uh, Manon Fjord and Rose Nami. Rose at flyweight, going to be an interesting proposition. Curious about that fight. Uh, what else? Give me one other thing on here. Come on. One other good fight. Give me one. I can't find one. Um. Okay, maybe uh, Farid Basharat and Kledson Rodriguez might not suck. Or that. Yeah. Okay. Up further on the card, I don't hate Benoit Sandini and Tiago Moises. You got two. The top two fights for that card are actually good. Gon and Spivak I like. Fjord and Nama Yunus I like. Um, but that gets kind of thin after that. Boy, Gon needs that win. Especially after what happened when he fought John Jones. I kind of think he'll get it, but... If he's going to show off some improved skill sets, this is the time to do it. Anyway. Full preview of that next week. All right. That's it for me. Thank you all very much, as always, for listening. I appreciate you. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.